Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Politics with Amy Walter. We just heard from the first two of 50 states. Two of them. Not all the nation. Not half the nation. Two. Now where I come from, that's the opening bell. This is not an easy decision or something I made lightly with the team. Endings are hard. I feel nothing but joy tonight as we conclude this particular campaign. We have been trapped in some ways by this narrative about being late. The fight to save our democracy is an uphill battle, but our campaign is built for the long haul. President Trump is praising the decision to seek a lower sentence for his friend Roger Stone as questions swirl about political interference in the case. He was treated very badly, nine years recommended by four people. Several of the prosecutors who convicted Roger Stone of lying to Congress have resigned from the team. Perhaps they were Mueller people. I don't know who they were, prosecutors. I don't know what happened. They all hit the road pretty quickly. The attorney general has stooped to such levels. What a sad disappointment to our country. To have public statements and tweets made about the department make it impossible uh, for me to do my job. Former New York Mayor Mike Bloomberg's apologizing for stop-and-frisk policy. What we learned was that uh, we weren't uh, on top of things and we didn't uh, understand just how uh, impactful it is on, was on young uh, men of color who got stopped. Anything we can do to get down crime and to get rid of drugs. But I think when a man is with stop-and-frisk his whole life and then he decides to go Democrat, I think that's so disingenuous. With victories behind us, popular vote in Iowa and the victory here tonight, we're going to Nevada, we're going to South Carolina, we're going to win those states as well. So many of you chose to meet a new era of challenge with a new generation of leadership. We have beaten the odds every step of the way. I was going to vote for Biden and then uh, shifted towards Sanders because of the environmental issues. And then Mayor Pete had a big night in Iowa. Amy Klobuchar captured that in the debate. Someone to have the momentum, the energy to go up against Trump. All right, come from, that's the opening bell. The Week in Politics. Oh, and there was another big win this week. The best in the show goes to the standard person. Yes! Now that is my favorite story of the week, Westminster Dog Show winner, Siba. But in terms of non-canine candidates, we've got a lot to get to on the show, including a visit to Nevada, where the Democratic Party is preparing for its caucuses, plus a conversation about black voters. But to begin, I'm joined in studio here in Washington, D.C. by Adam Harris, national politics writer for The Atlantic, and Andrew Prokop, senior politics correspondent at Vox. Hi, guys. How's it going? And joining me from New York is Philip Bump, national correspondent for The Washington Post. Hi, Philip. Well, hello. All right, um, Andrew, I'm going to start with you and this latest news from the Department of Justice. After getting criticism that the Department of Justice bowed to pressure from the president to ask for a more lenient sentence for Roger Stone, Bill Barr made a rare public appearance this week. He was on ABC News where he said that the president's tweets are making it harder for him to do his job. So, Andrew, what is the story here? Is this Barr trying to issue a brushback to the president saying, hey, you're you're making my job tougher? 
Or is this, as some have speculated, just theater? I think if you look at what Barr actually said, um, he's not admitting any error or anything inappropriate regarding to what actually happened here, the underlying issue, which was his uh, intervention to roll back the sentencing recommendation that career prosecutors had offered for Roger Stone, Trump's longtime associate. Uh, Barr thinks or professes to think that this was perfectly the right thing to do, that the original sentence they recommended was far too excessive. And what he is speaking out about is tweets by President Mm -hmm. Trump on the matter. And he says that the tweets just basically make it look bad when he steps in in this way. Um, You can sort of read his comments as as almost a message to the president saying, you know, I I agree with you on a lot of this stuff. I'm with you. Like, I'm I'm protecting your interests. He he vowed his independence as well, that he wouldn't be pressured and so on. But um, but he said that the tweets make it more difficult. And, and I think particularly uh, concerning to him may have been one where Trump tweeted congratulations to Bill Barr for getting control of a case that was totally out of control. Uh it's just Barr has uh, has shown uh, a whole lot of imperviousness to criticism uh, about his intervention in matters like this in the past from the Mueller report onward. But I think for him to make a statement like this shows that he is feeling the heat from inside the Justice Department and that he did need to say something he felt like. It's just not clear that, you know, on the on the substance that he's going to change anything he's doing. Yeah, I mean, when has that ever worked to tell the president, maybe you should stop tweeting? Philip, um, let's talk about how voters are processing a lot of this. I mean, thus far, we've had the Mueller report, we've had impeachment, we've had the debates over Ukraine, and none of this seems to move opinions of the president. So is this just yet another instance where voters have sort of like priced in this behavior into their opinions about Donald Trump. And we just have to expect that it's not going to change the way uh, voters see him as we get closer to November. Yeah, I think we've seen since the outset of President Trump's uh, time in office that there hasn't been real change in his opinion polling. Uh, But it's certainly the case that Republicans are overwhelmingly favorable, uh, have overwhelmingly favorable views of the president. Uh, Democrats have overwhelmingly negative views of the president. And I think that one of the things that President Trump has learned over time is that that means that he can do the things he wants to do and not see much change. But I think one of the other things that happened this week uh, that's worth lifting up is that he he renewed the emergency declaration in regards to the border. Uh, And I think that's notable because there's this huge furor over this last year, one year ago, when he first made the announcement, there was a huge shutdown fight over funding for the wall. And this year it came and went and the emergency declaration moves forward and, and barely anyone noticed. And I think that another thing that President Trump has noticed is that once he gets past that initial outburst of uh, outcry, it's pretty much smooth sailing. Uh, and I think that he's seeing, for example, that after having gone through this impeachment, having gone through these issues with Ukraine, I think he now sees that he has fairly smooth ocean sailing ahead of him. Uh, and I think that that, too, derives from the fact that he understands that not much has uh, changed in terms of his support or his opposition, uh, broadly speaking, in the poll numbers. And that he knows Congress, especially with members of his own party, just the closer that they get to the election, the less interested they are 
in distancing themselves from him. Right. Well, I mean, those two things are obviously related, mm-hmm. right? I mean, the Republican members of Congress have zero interest in bucking Donald Trump because Republicans have zero interest in bucking right. Donald Trump. And as long as it is the case that the Republicans broadly think Donald Trump is doing a good job, members of his own party who are up for re-election or who may be up for re-election in two or four years are similarly not going to do anything to, to rock the boat. Adam, I want to jump in with you to talk about the other big story, of course, which is the Democratic nomination fight. We've only had two states that have voted, but is it fair to call Bernie Sanders the frontrunner at this point? I think it is fair to call Bernie Sanders the frontrunner, but I also think that um, kind of from the beginning, uh, from when he announced his campaign, he, he kind of clearly jumped out as the frontrunner. I mean, coming off a strong showing in 2016, coming in with a lot of support, um, I think he raised with $3.3 million in the first 24 hours after he announced um, his candidacy. So I think that um, there was the, the one wrinkle of if Joe Biden enters the race, then perhaps he becomes the fr- frontrunner. Um But after these first two states where you have a performance from Biden in fourth place in Iowa, you have fifth place in New Hampshire, um, and you have a kind of resurgent uh, Pete Buttigieg, but but, um, kind of the energy behind the Sanders campaign and where he's um, where he's placed in in both Iowa and New Hampshire kind of clearly set him as as the front runner in this. Okay, so who then is his strongest opponent going forward? I mean, the name now that's being talked about more than anyone who's currently on the ballot is Mike Bloomberg. Yeah, and and Bloomberg is kind of the um, he's kind of lying in wait um, at, at Super Tuesday since he's not in any of these first four primaries. But um, the amount of money and resources that he's funneling into this campaign is something that we haven't really seen. Um, we've we've talked a lot about money and politics in the past, but um, the the fact that someone can spend this amount of money of their own that they're not um, raising through PACs or anything like that is something um, is is incredibly singular to our political moment. So. Um, he's spending a lot of money on ads in, in, in these states. He's got 150 field offices with more than with thousands of staff members. Um, so he's really able to be on the ground, and he's starting to see that um, kind of showing up in his poll numbers. In Arkansas, for example, um, he, he recently polled at 19% in one poll where um, Joe Biden was just behind him at 18, and then you have Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg. So, um, and Arkansas votes on Super Tuesday. And Arkansas yeah. votes on Super Tuesday. So, so there is a, a concern that uh, among some of the the Democrats currently in the race uh, that that you know Bloomberg might be able to sweep some of those SEC states. Um, Philip, uh, want to go to you and talk about uh, the other obsession right now, especially on political Twitter or within political circles, the possibility of a so-called contested convention that Bernie Sanders is a front runner, but not by enough to get 50% of the delegates. How realistic is that? And should we take that seriously at this point? I mean, it's a pretty realistic possibility. 538, which has a very good uh, model of where this thing is going to go, suggests that it may be the most likely outcome at this point in time. And uh, Andrew, for example, has done great work in pointing out how uh, the way the delegates are allocated, particularly once Super Tuesday comes around, Super Tuesday is a gigantic chunk of the delegate pool. And once you get past that point, if you still have a number of candidates in the race, two or, you know, three or four candidates in the race, it becomes very hard because of how the delegates are allocated, because it's proportionally distributed in in the Democratic Party. It becomes hard for someone to pull away and hit the 1991 mark that you need in order to, 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 to actually have a majority. And as long as that's the case, if you get to the convention, and even if someone has 19, you know, 1,990 delegates coming into, coming into the convention, 
all of a sudden you have to start this this horse trading and figuring out who's going to go support who, and then that's that's the contested convention. So so it is because of how the Democratic Party actually does its math on delegates. It it is a more realistic possibility, I think, now than it has been in, in a lot of uh, recent uh, contested elections. For Adam and Philip, Adam, I'm going to start with you here, but um, talk a, talking a little bit about the Democratic nomination and Bernie Sanders. This week, he made it seem as if we get to the end of the primary process and a candidate has a plurality, but maybe not a majority of delegates, then that person should be the nominee, Um, even though the process does allow for delegates to choose whoever they want to. once we get to a contested convention. So is Bernie Sanders essentially laying his marker down for his supporters to say, look, if we win the most votes, even if it's not 50%, we better win this thing or else we're going to make some trouble. So I think that there is kind of, and throughout the primary, there's been a real um, sort of angst about how the Democrats have operated in terms of just generally nominating a candidate, Um, whether that's from uh, the first four states that are voting, not being necessarily as reflective of the national population and particularly the the Democratic Democratic voters. Um, But kind of to to Senator Sanders' point, there is kind of this 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 trend and and his supporters that's like you know this was taken from us because we are we have the most popular side right um and he's kind of had to say you know my my supporters shouldn't be as uh, if anyone's being kind of abusive online then, then I, they're not necessarily representing me um but i think that there is kind of this vein that's like hey we are the most popular campaign. We should, we, that, that should mean mm-hmm. something. Um, and uh, it kind of goes back to this notion of, well, should the popular vote win the presidency? It's like this, this idea that um, the m- person who wins the most votes should become the nominee. And I think that uh, Democrats are going to have to, at some point, start reconsidering exactly how they're nominating a, a candidate, um, particularly if they're making the argument that nationally uh, the popular vote should matter more than um, say the electoral college, right? Although Philip, as we know, you win because of delegates. That's right. how this process works. And look, a lot of the changes to this process were driven by the Bernie Sanders wing of the party. Right. Um, so, how messy could things really get here? Do you think? Well, I, I think there are two layers of messiness that we need to consider. There's the convention messiness, and then there's the mm-hmm. post-convention messiness. I do think mm-hmm. it's worth remembering that in 2016, when Bernie Sanders was trailing Hillary Clinton on delegates, he made the opposite case, which was essentially mm-hmm. that we were more popular coming into the convention, and therefore, you know, if the, if she doesn't actually hit that mark, we should be given consideration. Superdelegates mm-hmm. should come and actually vote for the Sanders campaign. Uh, so it was it was sort of a different ang- argument he was making mm-hmm. then. But so things could get messy at the convention, certainly. It's you know, and I think that part of what Michael Bloomberg is hoping is that things do get messy at the convention, that he can help things get messy at the convention, mm-hmm. and then people can say, you know what, to heck with it. Uh, we're not sure where this thing's going to go, but Michael Bloomberg has m- more money than everyone else in this room put together, so let's make him the nominee and let him spend all his money on it, right? That's sort of the Bloomberg strategy to some extent. Right. So so that that's at the convention itself. After the convention, there's this whole other question. So if Bernie Sanders is not the nominee, then we get into the question of what happens to Bernie Sanders' support. And it certainly is the case that while 
it was often overstated the extent to which Bernie Sanders supporters in 2016 decided to stay home in, in, in uh, the general election and or vote for another candidate. It, it is something that is of unique concern. There's a good piece. It's, it's Slate uh, by Millicent Summer that looks at what Sanders support does and, and where it might go. Um, uh, but, you know, that is of, of unique concern because Bernie Sanders has a very loyal base of support. And the question is, if he isn't the nominee, where does that support go? Does it hamper the Democrats down the line? And that's one of the arguments that the Sanders team is making that, you know, that, that part of the reason that he should be the nominee, I shouldn't say his team, but his supporters, part of the reason he should be the nominee is because he brings that base of support that may not be there for someone else. Uh, Philip, thanks so much for being here. Adam Harris, national politics writer for The Atlantic, Andrew Prokop, senior politics correspondent at Fox, and of course, Philip Bump, who I was just speaking with, national correspondent for The Washington Post. Thanks so much, you all. Thanks for having me. Thank you. After spending the last few weeks in ice and snow, the political world now moves to the sunnier climate of Nevada, which holds the caucuses on February 22nd. But after the chaotic situation in Iowa, there are still big questions about whether Nevada Democrats can avoid that same fate. The Nevada Democratic Party recently scrapped the plan to use the same app technology used by Iowa Democrats. However, that hasn't reassured those who are participating in the caucuses that things are going to actually run smoothly. Megan Messerly of the Nevada Independent joined me to discuss this. Our best understanding is that it's some sort of, again, a tool that will take this early vote data and bring it back to the home precinct. And this is important because folks are choosing up to five presidential preferences ranked in order for early voting. And that that's important because that viability threshold we were talking about earlier. If your candidate isn't viable on the first round and you're early voting, you know, you're not there in person to say, hey, so-and-so is my second choice. So that's why you have to rank those preferences in order. So all that data has to somehow get back to your home precinct to be counted alongside your neighbor's preferences on the actual day of the caucus. So this mechanism, this tool is supposed to somehow do that. We've been told that the party isn't going to be using any apps. We've been told it is not an app. Um, But some training slides that I obtained from what volunteers are being shown uh, says that this will be something that will be preloaded onto an iPad and there will be an icon um, on the, the home screen of the iPad that you will click to access this. So you know, that could mean it's a link to something that's browser-based. We're still waiting to get more details on exactly what that looks like. But folks here are obviously concerned, volunteers, campaigns, caucus goers. Um, we've been getting a lot of folks reaching out to us just saying, you know, they just want more clarity on the process. I think on the party side, they're trying to be slow and diligent, you know, make sure all their ducks are in a row uh, so that Nevada does not turn into another another Iowa. But that has also caused a lot of frustration, I think, for folks here who just want to know how it's going to work, um, given that early voting begins this week. The state party, though, has known, like the Iowa State Party, that this caucus was going to be happening and that the rules of early voting were going to be a part of this. So why is it only now that they're starting to get this technology tested and engage with volunteers? Right. So something that I think is really interesting is that, you know, the the Nevada State Democratic Party um, had been planning to use apps to carry out this early voting process for for many months. You know, I I was talking to party officials about this throughout last year. In December, I, you know, first obtained a copy of some screenshots of what the apps they were going to use were supposed to look like, the way it was 
previously supposed to work before Iowa happened was there was going to be an uh, iPad-based app for early voting. So instead of using the paper uh, ballots like we're using now, uh, the goal was going to be have folks on an iPad. You'd be able to choose up to those five preferences, and that would all happen through an app. It would be transmitted to um, your precinct to a caucus day app, kind of like what Iowa was using Obviously, the problem there uh, is that the company that developed those apps was a political technology company known as Shadow Inc. So obviously what happened um, after the Iowa caucus was the Nevada Democratic Party here uh, decided to scrap those apps and sort of start over from scratch. One of the complaints in Iowa was that, um, you know, folks were downloading this app just a couple of days before. They felt like they didn't have training on it. Um, That wasn't the case here in Nevada. The party had been training volunteers going back to December on exactly how these apps were going to function. Uh, Party officials told me that um, volunteers actually actively had the caucus Day app downloaded on their phones and were able to use it and test it. So they were um, preparing a little bit more, it sounds like, than what Iowa was doing. But obviously, the issue here is that, you know, with what we saw happen in Iowa, you know, there being a a coding error in the Iowa app, uh, obviously, Democrats here did not want to take that risk by going forward with those two apps developed by this company. There is a risk either of sticking with an app that they had been working with that could have a failure as it did in Iowa, or the risk of introducing something brand new just a couple weeks before the caucuses, which could confuse the volunteers and party people who are trying to get accurate data. Exactly. The apps being designed in Nevada were supposed to perform different functions in that they were carrying in this early vote data. So in some ways, they're actually more it's more complex than the function that just the Iowa app was carrying out, which is just sort of calculating the caucus math and transmitting those results to the state party. Um, but our understanding is at best, these were similar apps. So it's it's hard to know if that same you know problem that was present in the Iowa apps uh, was also going to be at issue for Nevada. Can you tell us how voters that you talk to are processing what happened in those early states and how it's impacting the way they may be thinking about voting? It's hard to say, right? On one hand, you know, I think Nevadans want to make their own choices, right? We're um, the first diverse state to participate in the process. Our population is 30% Latino, 10% Black, uh, 10% Asian American and Pacific Islander. So that in of itself just sort of changes, I think, how folks are perceiving the race because it's not the sort of overwhelmingly uh, white state like Iowa and New Hampshire are. At the same time, momentum matters, right? And folks are looking at, I think, what happened in Iowa and New Hampshire and seeing who has staying power and who doesn't. Obviously, you know, Bernie Sanders did quite well in Iowa, you know, won New Hampshire. So I think Bernie Sanders is obviously well positioned going into Nevada's caucus. He has more than 250 paid staffers on the ground, which is far and above uh, what the other campaigns have. The next biggest campaign is uh, Pete Buttigieg's team. He has about 100 staffers on the ground. So, you know, I think Bernie was always well positioned here, but he's perhaps even better positioned given what happened in Iowa and New Hampshire. I think Pete Buttigieg is the other really interesting one. Obviously, his, you know, victory in Iowa doing quite well in New Hampshire is a huge boost to him coming into Nevada. You know, folks I had talked to at rallies, you know, liked him, but it was still he's this new candidate on the scene. He's, you know, a young mayor from a Midwest town. Um, You know, does he have the chops to be president? You know, the fact that he was able to prove in Iowa and New Hampshire that there is support there and that he is staying in this race, you know, might help him significantly here in Nevada. 
And the way he's really built his operation here, he started off much later than the other campaigns. Uh, He started in June of last year. And he sort of slowly uh, but steadily built his team up to become the second largest operation in the state with the idea being that, you know, he was sort of building the sailboat, you know, have the sail there so that if there was wind coming out of Iowa, New Hampshire, his team here could capture it. So I think that's going to be their focus um, moving forward. Megan Messerly, thank you so much for taking the time and helping us understand Nevada a little bit better. Thanks so much for having me. Megan Messerly is a reporter with the Nevada Independent. Since our conversation, Nevada Democrats announced that precinct chairs would be using a Google Forms-based calculator on an iPad come caucus night. We'll see what happens. You know, I've said all along Nevada's the best early, early state, and I think my case is clear here. That's Rebecca Katz. She's a founding partner at New Deal Strategies. Her fondness for Nevada is due in large part to her work with former U.S. senator from the state and powerhouse in the Democratic Party, Harry Reid. I asked Rebecca if she thought Nevada would finally give us some real clear answers, answers we weren't able to get from Iowa and New Hampshire. Traditionally, Nevada has been the tiebreaker. You know, Iowa uh, went for Obama, then New Ham- in 08, uh, New Hampshire went for Clinton, and then and then it came back to Obama, and he got the most delegates and went on to win uh, the nomination in the White House. In 2016, uh, Hillary won uh, Iowa, then Bernie won New Hampshire, and then uh, Hillary came back here to Nevada and won. So we have been traditionally the tiebreaker. But now it's a little, you know, it's hard to predict anything after, you know, we saw that the fifth place finisher in Iowa went on to come from nowhere and become like sort of third place in New Hampshire. So it's hard to to predict with accuracy what will happen here in Nevada. It truly is a toss up. It's been interesting to see the campaigns really, really go hard for the state. Yeah. Tell me what the campaigns are doing. And obviously, if you're somebody like an Amy Klobuchar, as you pointed out, the one who came in fifth place and then in third place, she doesn't have the sort of organizational muscle in the state that others who've been there for a while, like Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren do. And is that going to matter? Right. So, I mean, I would say of all the campaigns, um, Bernie Sanders has had the biggest uh, organization here. He has 250. Uh, staffers. He's well-known. He's been on the ground organizing for a long time. He's been working very hard um, on organizing Latino voters. And he's just he he's come to really not just to compete, but to win. But having said that, you know, there is Biden has been doing pretty solid in the polls. It's hard to say yet whether his previous performances will hurt him here in Nevada. But he is uh, traditionally liked by a lot of folks. And then I think there's there's Pete and Amy who are going for a lot of the same voters and Warren, who's ha- who has an operation here as well. Um, and then what we can't forget, which who hasn't made much of a play at all in the previous states is Tom Steyer. It's hard to turn on the television without seeing Steyer ads. And those ads aren't just about him, but he's attacking Biden and Buttigieg in his ads. So that's that's something. I mean, you've been on the ground there for a little while. Is the divide among Democrats there similar to what we had seen in Iowa and New Hampshire, this debate over electability, this debate over who would match up best with the president, the we can't go 
too bold or we can't go too, you know, around the edges? What, what's what's going on there? To a certain extent, you know, Iowa and New Hampshire are both very, very white states, right? And they have one view of what electability is, and it's who they, you know, they like the most. I think when you when you start broadening it a little bit more in terms of Nevada, what they're taking seriously here is that because this is a state that frankly looks more like the Democratic Party, not just because it's a third Latino, it's also, you know, the uh, fastest growing Asian American population. There's a huge organized labor presence. Um, This is a state that looks more like Super Tuesday states if you're looking ahead to California and Texas. So the the people here are looking for a candidate who won't just do well here, but who can really thrive in the states coming up. And that's why I think you're going to see results that might be a little bit different than what we've seen in the past. Explain what that means, that it looks different than what we've seen in the past. You know, I I think that, um, as I mentioned with with Bernie, you know, he was uh, he did well in communities of color in in Iowa and New Hampshire, but those communities of color were quite small. In Nevada, the you know with the the diverse population here, he has a chance to do much much better. Pete is on the air here; he's making a real play for it. I don't know. I think he has a, a shot, but it's 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 harder work than I think it has been for him in the past two states. One other group I want you to weigh in on is the Culinary Union, which has an incredible amount of influence in Nevada. And in the past, their endorsement has carried a lot of weight. They've been critical of Medicare for All policies supported by candidates like Bernie Sanders because they argue that it would undercut the health care coverage they've negotiated for their members. Culinary Union ha- provides very good health care for their members. They are very weary of Medicare for All. Um, I say this as someone who is very uh, a strong proponent of Medicare for All, full disclosure. Um, so <laughs> they have been um, – They, I think if Biden might have had a stronger, stronger showing in Iowa, New Hampshire, I think he would have – got the culinary to, co- to, uh, to come behind him um, with no clear candidate who is not for Medicare for all. They put out a flyer this week, basically implying that the Sanders campaign would take away their health care, that you couldn't have the health care you have with the culinary union under Medicare for all. And so that has provoked a lot of back and forth um, between the Sanders campaign and culinary um, and the other candidates very much seeking culinary's endorsement. I think in terms of rank and file members of culinary, uh, Bernie Sanders has, does have a strong connection with a lot of the members. Um, I think he does not have as warm relationships uh, with uh, culinary union leaders. Could this backfire then? For the leadership, it's hard to say who it's going to backfire on. You know, like at the one hand, you have Sanders campaign and culinary going back and forth. I don't know. Does that does that give uh, Sanders more airtime to talk about why Medicare for all is a good thing for everybody and culinary? Like, if if you're a union member and you like your health care, then don't you want other people to have good health care too? That's what Medicare for all is. You know, like it just depends if he can lean into that argument. Or does it become a whole he said, they said kind of situation? Buttigieg put out an ad right after New Hampshire basically saying – it seems directed at culinary union members saying, if you like your health care plan, like I'm not going to touch that. And it was a very effective ad that I'm sure will be up all around the state soon. Um, so, so look for Pete to be making a move there. When it comes to turnout, what is – I mean we heard a lot about this after Iowa, right, this – concern among some Democrats that the lower than expected turnout suggests that Democrats aren't fired up enough. And so do you think that same standard is going to be 
put in place with Nevada, that if Democrats don't hit 2008 levels or 2016 levels, it shows they're not excited about. Right. We saw Iowa go one way and we saw New Hampshire go another way. It's hard to say. It's a hard state to figure out, like, who is going to caucus. But I will say with the addition of early vote this year, you know, the party is going out of its way to try and get as many people to vote on their own timeline as possible. What else do we need to know about the state as we gear up for these caucuses that folks who don't live there or haven't participated in anything like this need to understand? Nevada is very much, um, and it's an interesting state. If you don't know that much about it, it's it's more than just Las Vegas. I'll say that. Um, and if you want to look to win here, you have to organize a broad coalition of folks. It's not just getting, you know, these white voters or these moderates. It's, it's about really speaking to all the groups. And I will say that, that the numbers, you know, will come in. We, what we've seen in the past is that the rurals come in later. So that's something to look for, too. Um, in, in 2008, Hillary actually had a victory party. Um, she was designated the winner. And then many hours later, the results came in from Elko. Um, and it turned out that Obama had one more delegate and he was declared the winner. That was a big shock to a lot of people. And so so just look for – I think you'll see a lot of Clark County coming in first, but we might not know. If it's a close race, we might not know until very late. Rebecca, have fun out there. Okay. Thanks for having me back. It's, it's always a pleasure. Rebecca Katz is founding partner at New Deal Strategies. And on Thursday, just after we spoke to Rebecca, news broke that the Culinary Union would not be endorsing a candidate ahead of the Nevada caucuses scheduled for February 22nd. This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, the fewer on college campuses over the war in Gaza. Students have tried to have dialogue over and negotiate differences in how they see the world, even as they respond to tragedies and crimes overseas. Students and faculty from Harvard University on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Look, we got to stop taking the black community for granted. That's the starting place. And it's important to own up to the facts about how race has totally permeated our criminal justice system. We have a racist society from top to bottom impacting health care, housing, criminal justice, education, you name it. But there's something else insidious going on that we haven't addressed, and that is the systematic racism when it comes to voting. Unless you can appeal to the diverse parts of the Democratic Party, including specifically the black community, if you can't do that, then we can't beat Donald Trump. There is no question that systemic racism has penetrated to every level of our system, and my city was not immune. It took a lot of heat. There is no excuse why white families in America have 10 times more wealth than black families. No excuse. Black voters are a key part of the Democratic base. Since 1988, no Democratic candidate has won the nomination without winning a majority of African-American voters. And as we move away from the overwhelmingly white states like New Hampshire and Iowa into more diverse ones like South Carolina, Nevada, Texas and California the issue of who can win black voters is coming into tighter focus. Erin Haynes is an editor-at-large for the 19th, and I asked her to assess how the media is doing in covering voters of color. Have they incorporated any lessons learned from how they fell short in 2016? Where we do still kind of fall short 
sometimes is in recognizing that our default setting a lot of times for voter is going to be that white man, uh, which Mm -hmm. we need to get away from, right? Like, what do we mean when we say an educated voter? What do we mean when we say a rural voter? What do we mean when we say a working class or blue collar voter, right? And so getting, uh, getting to a point where we are thinking about those types of people, economic anxiety, if we're not framing that through the lens of, of voters of color, uh, you know, I think that that is a mistake as well. And so if, if, if we're not framing things more through that lens uh, this time around, I, I do think that that would be a mistake. Well, Aaron, that brings up a good point, because it seems like, especially in the debates, the prism with which we talk about voters of color, especially African-American voters, is on the issue of criminal justice. Absolutely. And that's where candidates have been most criticized, right? Kamala Harris and her role as a prosecutor, Amy Klobuchar, her role as a prosecutor, of course, Michael Bloomberg Mm -hmm. and stop and frisk. Mm -hmm. So is the prism now just so narrow? And what does that what does that do and say about once again, both how the media and the candidates are portrayed on the issues that are important to voters of color. Both the media and candidates have to do a better job uh, on talking about race on the debate stage, right? I think that we do notice, and I've certainly seen people lamenting on social media that the, that the conversation, the few minutes that, that are spent on race in these debates, which usually happens well into uh, you know these, these two and three hour debates, is about criminal justice. And there are one or two questions that maybe go to one or two candidates and then we're moving on, right? When we know that all issues affect voters of color and any issue can be discussed through the lens of people of color if, you know, but that's a choice. And and, and I think that that's a choice that has to be made by the moderators, but it's also a choice that has to be made by candidates when, you know, who need to be intentionally kind of interjecting uh, the, you know, the conversation around those disparities, you know, on the debate stage with with their fellow fellow candidates, bringing up things like, for example, black women's maternal mortality mm-hmm. in a conversation around health care or, or bringing black people into the conversation around the economy or, or, you know, talking about education, you know, student student loan debt or free college and the way that that might affect black or brown students. Uh, you know, but but you, if if it's not something that's going to come up organically, folks are going to have to be a lot more intentional so that voters understand uh, that that as candidates uh, and, and as people that are asking uh, for their votes, that that they are they are communities and, and and voters that they see as well. Let's talk about some of the candidates. And there's conventional wisdom out there that two of the candidates who have been successful thus far in the primary caucuses. Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, are going to struggle to win over voters of color, especially African-American voters. You've been out on the trail. You've been paying very close attention to the contest here. Is that a fair assessment? And what room do you think they have to grow or not and why? Well, you know, Amy, that's interesting because I think with Mayor Pete, Buttigieg, he is somebody who has had quite a bit of time to make his case to Black America because of the resources, uh, financial resources that he's had uh, in terms of fundraising, because of the uh, paid and earned media that he has had. He has had a lot of opportunities to to talk about the Black agenda that he has 
for, for voters, uh, specifically his, his Douglas plan named after Frederick Douglass, mm-hmm. the famous uh, abolitionist. Uh, and he, he has made that case in front of white and black audiences about kind of what he would do for black America if, if elected president. Uh, obviously, some of the issues that he had as former mayor of South Bend uh, with regard to policing, uh, the police shooting that happened during uh, the campaign uh, last summer uh, were issues for him that he struggled to respond to and, and maybe uh, gave some responses that were not satisfactory uh, to some black voters. And so he, I, I think uh, the latest polling has showed him at somewhere around 4% mm-hmm. with the African-American community as we head into uh, Nevada and South Carolina. And so, you know, that's not a good sign uh, that he has worked for this long and has still really not been able to make any real inroads with black voters. Senator Amy Klobuchar, on the other hand, is somebody who surged to third place after the New Hampshire primary. And so she is somebody who is just now really starting to get the traction and attention uh, of all voters, including voters of color, right? And so with that kind of um, raised profile comes increased scrutiny. Her record as a prosecutor, something that is now being focused on, was not being focused on, uh, you know, this time last year when she was kind of in that lower tier of candidates, even though she's made every debate stage. So I don't mean to, to dismiss at all uh, her candidacy, but but she is somebody that, that folks are now looking at. And, and I think that, that she certainly does have um, more of a, um, well, she has a potential to grow too. I mean, both she and Mayor Buttigieg uh, are, are going into Nevada and South Carolina with a headwind, but, but Senator Klobuchar is much more of an unknown, I would say, uh, mm. to black voters because she, she didn't necessarily have the financial resources to go to those more diverse states and really introduce herself. Right. I mean, she's she's a senator from Minnesota. So a lot of the country, frankly, does not know who she is. And that includes that includes black voters who are going to be so pivotal to 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 uh, the path to the nomination in this primary. Aaron Haynes is editor at large for the 19th. Maya King is a 2020 fellow covering race and demographics for Politico. She just flew in from South Carolina. So I asked her what she saw while she was on the ground in the Palmetto State. One, we've spent so much time talking about how savvy Iowa and New Hampshire voters are, and we have not spent a lot of time pointing out just how savvy and pragmatic black voters in South Carolina are. And one of the bigger developments that I saw there this weekend, especially following uh, Vice Pre- the former Vice President Joe Biden's launch party, is that black voters are now exploring other options. I think the narrative has been that black voters love Joe Biden because of his proximity to former President Obama. And while that is true, they are exploring other options because they're thinking about now who is making the best case for their electability. Um, And we understand, of course, that the demographics of Iowa and New Hampshire are not at all reflective of the country and have are polar opposites. Um, from South Carolina. However, it is not lost on black voters down there that Bernie Sanders, um, who had a very strong performance in Iowa and New Hampshire, and also is speaking their language um, on topics like health care and affordable college. Um, These are the things that I heard on the ground while knocking doors, even with the Biden campaign volunteers. Mm. There were a lot of people who said, I love Joe Biden. I love Uncle Joe. And I'll never not I'll never not have that affinity or that affection for him. However, the stakes are higher and higher. 
And the understanding is now um, there are other people who are making a stronger case and a more um, it's easier to see now down the road a scenario where Bernie Sanders or I, I'm not sure what how people feel about Amy Klobuchar yet, but even a Michael Bloomberg might be capable of defeating Donald Trump, which now just makes Joe Biden the same Uncle Joe who was favored um, and appreciated, but uh, maybe passed over for somebody else. Can you tell us how Mayor Pete is being viewed in South Carolina at this point? Again, he's had a good mm-hmm. two showings thus far. Uh, well, South Carolina is largely an endorsements game uh, for the candidates. Now, whether or not those endorsements carry weight with voters is another story. However, uh, J.A. Moore, a state South Carolina legislator, just endorsed Pete Buttigieg. That's a very big get for his campaign because state legislators do have direct connections with their constituents and some level of influence. It's also worth noting um, that Jim Clyburn's grandson, Walter Clyburn, is also um, an organizer on the Buttigieg campaign. That's another thing that carries weight. And Again, the national narrative is a little bit different than what's happening on the ground. So Buttigieg's inability to connect with black voters um, is still something that we have to pick apart, I think, in communities, uh, black communities across the country. However, in South Carolina, my sense from a very limited uh, viewpoint, because I spent most of my time with the Biden campaign, is that there is at least an openness to hearing what Pete Buttigieg has to say. Um, And an understanding that at least he's trying. My one uh, last thing for you is the issue of Mike Bloomberg. I think when the prospect of Mike Bloomberg as a candidate was raised even a couple years ago, uh, where folks would go to is there's no way he can win the Democratic nomination given his support for stop and frisk. He has since apologized for it. But how... Can Michael Bloomberg address this? Is he addressing it? Does he need to in a way that allows him to sort of move through this process? Well, it's it's so tough because stop and frisk was a policy that truly fundamentally changed the lives of of hundreds of thousands of African-Americans and Latinos in this country. And there are some people who are not entirely familiar with the policy, but can certainly understand and relate to police brutality and the feelings that come with that. Michael Bloomberg, you know, it's it's tough because he also has a number of people in his corner who uh, you might otherwise expect to disavow a candidate who is running on this platform. And I, I, I can't call exactly how an apology will look and whether or not it's even possible to apologize enough uh, for this while running for president. And I think the thing that black voters are finally looking for that they truly haven't gotten is a candidate who is able to make good on his or her promise to black America, to committing to a platform um, and a plan 
to improve communities. And part of that platform, especially, you know, when you're talking about policies that really appeal to black voters and black communities is improved police community relations. So Bloomberg, um, you know, has to he has to address this again. And he has to I think it's it's not going to go away. And another thing that's going to be on his radar is the fact that he was a Republican for several decades. I mean, these are the things this is the oppo that is coming forward. And these are the things that black voters who, as we keep saying, and I think it's very true, are very pragmatic and think things through and are very analytical um, about their voting decisions. What's it going to take to change the minds of so many people um, who are the backbone of the Democratic Party to vote for and get behind in mass a former Republican who supported um, a policy that terrorized their communities? I don't know. But right now, I mean, I think that's what a lot of people are asking is, how is he doing so well among African-American voters or in states um, where we've seen some polling that are not the first four states, given that? Well, I mean, he's taken on Trump and he's doing so in a way that we're able to see him getting under his skin. And I think the message that, well, of course, you know, black voters, black Democrats, that's their number one goal is beating Trump. I'll give you an anecdote. I was on the phone with my dad the other day asking him where he stands. And we're also from Florida, which is a very crucial state. And it's a state that Bloomberg has really targeted um, in his ads and in his organizing. And he said, my dad said, I am going to vote for Biden, I think. But if he doesn't make it to Florida, I like what Bloomberg has to say. And that, I mean, that captured it for me, honestly, because... Here's someone who was born and raised in Florida and really only knows about Southern politics, who is now hearing from the former Republican mayor of New York and likes what he has to say because he thinks that the money and the message is enough to take on Trump. And I think that that's representative of how a number of black voters in this country feel and are, um, you know, despite despite the sordid history um, of, of the former New York mayor. But the more that this stop and frisk stuff comes out and the more that the, um, the narrative kind of evolves around his history with race and, and who he is as a leader, uh, that, that might turn the tide. I'm, I'm, it's definitely a wait and see. Maya King is a reporting fellow at Politico covering race and demographics. OK, here's one last thing from me today. We're just two contests into the Democratic primary, but Senator Bernie Sanders is looking stronger than ever. The Vermont senator hasn't yet proved he can grow his base. He's taken just 26 percent of the vote in the two early contests. But he can hit the all-important 15 percent threshold in more states than any of the other candidates. Plus, unlike the other non-billionaire candidates, Sanders has a dedicated stream of small-dollar fundraising that is impervious to the latest polling data or even a loss. But with Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren, once frontrunners for the nomination, back on their heels, the question is whether a strong challenger to Sanders can emerge, which is why all eyes are now on Mike Bloomberg. His money and his ability to focus his fire on Trump instead of his Democratic opponents has given him some real traction in the polls. But he's only just begun to get the level of scrutiny that befits a presidential contender. Will Democratic voters give him the benefit of the doubt? Or will his past prove to be too much for many Democrats to overlook? We will soon see. Call us anytime at 877-8-MY-TAKE or send us a tweet. I'm at Amy E. Walter. The show is at The Takeaway. 
The show is produced by Amber Hall and Patricia Jacob. Jay Cowett is our technical director and sound designer. Claire McKean is our board operator. Polly Arungu is our digital editor. And Lee Hill is acting executive producer. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway.